Tonight I want to give an introduction to the third practice, third core practice that we're exploring in this retreat, which we've called the practice of uh, cultivating or opening to spacious awareness. And I want to do so by first taking some time to look more carefully at the three characteristics of phenomena. Susie talked about them last night and especially explored the first of the three, impermanence. And I want to give some more time to the latter two, uh, dukkha, usually translated as suffering, and anatta, usually translated as not-self. So I'll explore some further the three characteristics, then talk more generally about the nature of spacious awareness. And thirdly, talk about how to practice, some ways to access, to practice spacious awareness. And in a way this will uh, set up our practice uh, tomorrow. You may have come to really love and appreciate impermanence. (laughs) But our focus on impermanence is impermanent. (laughs) Of course, everything is that goes without saying. (laughs) So it's interesting to uh, look at the question of why move from concentration to look at the three characteristics. And there was the question in the hall this morning, uh, if I remember it rightly, was this this feels so calm, so peaceful. Why should I leave that peace and move to study all these passing phenomena? One of which is suffering. Why? What's the payoff? What's the point? Uh, My colleague, Philip Moffat, uh, phrased it this way, using the term for happiness, which is sukha, he asked, why should we go from sukha to dukkha? <laughs> and Susie, of course, gave the response that uh, sukha or the calm or the peace of concentration is quite important, but it's both uh, impermanent and it's ultimately Um, by itself not liberating. And it covers over where there may be delusion or confusion or tendencies that will lead to suffering. And again, that's why we attend to the three characteristics. And in fact, as many of you know, the focus of insight meditation practice is to cultivate uh, insights. And some of us may have wondered what kind of insights are there. In the tradition, the most important insights are into these three characteristics. They're into impermanence, they're into the nature of suffering, the nature of freedom, and they're into the nature of the self, the reality of what's called anatta, or the lack of a solid, substantial, separate self, we might say. So a little bit more on each of them, primarily on the latter two. We've been exploring impermanence quite a bit uh, during the day in a lot of different ways, through the different senses, through, through the breath, through sensations, through sound, Uh, Also, in the guided practice I just did, also further uh, opening up to to what many people call choiceless awareness and uh, really, in a way, coming back to a a form of practice that looks very much like the introductory mindfulness practice that we uh, were trained in, most of us, that being with whatever presents itself 
and trying to be with it, see the arising and passing, not to get caught in what arises, but to see what arises clearly. And I'll be brief in saying a little bit more about dukkha and a little bit more about anatta. We could give whole talks or series of talks on both of those, on either of them. Dukkha is usually translated as suffering. I think as many of us know, there's a very important distinction that for me really opens up the meaning of dukkha, which is the distinction between pain and suffering. In English, we use those somewhat interchangeably. But the teaching about dukkha or suffering, even though it's expressed quite a few ways in the teachings, I think is at root a teaching about um, really overcoming or transforming suffering, whereas pain is a given of human experience. It's sometimes there. And the Buddha explored this in one of my favorite teachings of his called the teaching of the two arrows, which um, anyone who's heard me give a talk about every third talk I teach about the two arrows. So this is the second talk here. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's time. <laughs> so the Buddha was talking with practitioners and uh, said to them, everyone ex- experiences the unpleasant at times. And we can understand by that that sometimes there's, there are unpleasant sensations in the body, sometimes um, difficult thoughts, difficult emotions, sometimes there's unfairness or un- injustice. And these all occur to everyone. You know, we have the pain or the uh, unpleasant sensations of becoming ill, injury at times, and of course the process of dying, which often is, is uh, very difficult. The Buddha called that the first arrow. And he says that all of us are shot by a first arrow. You know, some have more of the unpleasant than others. It's not equal, but everyone has some degree of the unpleasant. And that a practitioner and a non-practitioner do not differ. The Buddha is really wanting to ask the, the practitioners, um, since everyone experiences that, how does a practitioner differ from a non-practitioner? Well, it's not in the fact of there being sometimes the unpleasant. And I'm gonna call that pain. But he said that sometimes there's a kind of reaction. And he said a non-practitioner will tend to react to the first arrow in various ways, as if that would help with the original sense of the unpleasant, with the original pain, as if that would help get rid of the pain. And so often when there is physical pain, we contract. A significant amount of chronic pain can be traced to that contraction. You know, and, one, and actually the first application, as some of you know, of mindfulness by John Kabat-Zinn in Massachusetts at the, at the University of Massachusetts Medical School was bringing mindfulness to people who, ha- who had some forms of chronic pain. I think this isn't true of a lot of forms of chronic pain, but with some forms of chronic pain, there is the, a lot of that contraction. And if one can teach people to relax, there's a significant diminishing of the actual pain because that's the second arrow. We probably know the second arrow most clearly in our emotional reactions. I interact with someone for 10 seconds, the person says something and I have uh, three hours or three days or three months of reactions. (laughs) And I shoot the second arrow at myself I may blame myself, judge myself, get in a funk, it can trigger old stuff, whatever. 
where I can shoot the second arrow at the other person, have a grudge, blame the other person, that's shooting the second arrow. Or if I'm treated unfairly, I may lash out. And so the teaching here is that the, we could call the first arrow pain and the second arrow is suffering. Sometimes it's taught that pain is a given, suffering is optional. I, I sometimes teach in Kentucky and went there a few years ago and one of the people there who works as a hospice nurse told me there was a, a woman in the hospice who was a double amputee at the foot of her bed, she had that slogan, pain is a given, suffering is an option. And so what this means is that part of the training is to be able to be with the first arrow without shooting the second arrow, which is not at all easy. But it gives us a sense, I think, of the, when we study dukkha, we're especially looking for the shooting of the second arrow, which could be judging oneself about how one's doing, bad meditation. Mm. Of course, in a way we shoot the second arrow when we have good meditations and comment on it as well. <laughs> you know. and, and so that becomes a large part of our practice. How can I be with what's challenging? It's really very similar to what Susie was talking about, that the kind of the glory of the practice is that anything becomes increasingly workable even difficult things, that we don't shoot the second arrow so much. I like to think of the, for example, the work of uh, people like Dr. King or Gandhi as applying this teaching of the two arrows at the social level. In other words, we have received pain. We will not shoot the second arrow and pass on the pain. And yet we will respond very forcefully to injustice. And so for me, it's a very fundamental teaching. It's really a short way of talking about the Four Noble Truths. And for me, this is the clearest way of talking about dukkha. So we want to watch where we shoot the second arrow. We want to study that. We want to uh, look, at, look at where we um, shoot the second arrow, where we react. We also want to see where we grab hold of things. Really the two aspects of dukkha are really the pushing away, which is shooting the second arrow, and the grabbing hold, the grasping compulsively. And we want to look at both of those. We can look at that in, when we're looking at the flow of impermanent phenomena, we see where we do either of those. We see where we grab hold, we see where we push away. And that becomes something that we study. Sometimes we can actually just have, when the mind's fairly quiet, we can be with the flow of phenomena and say, I'm going to look for any moment of dukkha. It's a very interesting way to practice. We can be on the lookout for that, those reactions and study dukkha. And that study really helps us to uh, work with dukkha, to understand it. And when I, when I work one-on-one with people, Maybe the single most uh, common guidance I give, particularly when there's some distress, is watch for shooting the second arrow. Things are challenging, there's some distress. Watch that tendency, which will be quite strong, to tell negative stories, spin negative scenarios, jump to generalizations that we know are untrue, but they give us clarity although it's the kind of clarity which results in suffering. (laughs) Because often, I was talking about this with some people in the one-on-ones, part of the way our mind works is that we actually prefer the clarity of suffering to dealing with the unknown. Do you know that one? (laughs) We want to go to that negative narrative, which we actually are pretty sure is not true, because it gives us meaning. It gives us clarity. We want to watch for that because the, the practice of the three characteristics is really opening to
to that sense of flow and in a sense a kind of not knowing. Just being with what's there, being with what comes up. And the teaching of anatta is quite similar. It's can I be with the flow of experience without in a way fixating around something as about me. Now there are a lot of complexities in this teaching and again, I could give a whole talk and in the past I've actually given series of talks like four talks just on this topic. So how do I condense those four talks into like three or four minutes? Largely by eliminating most of what I (laughs) 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 would say otherwise. So there are a lot of complexities. I want to be pretty simple here. We've had a taste, I think, in being with impermanence of what it's like to be with the flow of experience without a sense of self, right? Without self-consciousness or self-image or obsessive thinking referring to self. At least moments, right? At least short periods of time. And we actually, I think, have often experienced something like that in ordinary experience. One of the things I love the most about looking at anatta is that we often have experiences which are really without much of a sense of self in very ordinary experience. When I'm, maybe sometimes when I'm in the forest or in the mountains or by the ocean and there's not self-consciousness, I'm just with the phenomena. Very common in um, uh, music or art, being in that creative flow. I know that as a teacher when I'm at my best as a teacher, there's not much sense of self. There's just the, sort of the manifestation of what is coming through. And I think we know that. We know that maybe with people we're very close to, where there can be a sense of um, no self-consciousness, no self-image, just, just being. You can find this in sports. I have a friend named Andy Cooper who wrote a book called Playing in the Zone, which assembles quote after quote and, and story after story of athletes when they're in this place where uh, they call it playing in the zone. You know? And it's, um, you know, one of the examples of that was um, quite a while ago, about 20 years ago, in the uh, professional basketball finals. Uh, Michael Jordan was playing and he hit like, I don't know how many of you know what I'm talking about (laughs) in terms of the technicalities of basketball, but I'll I'll go ahead and pretend that you do. (laughs) And so he he hit seven straight three-point shots, which which means, means, and he was in the zone. Basketball players, when they're in the zone, they say like the basket is as big as a table, you know, and, and he was, they often, often also use the word unconscious in the zone. There's no self-consciousness. They're just being. There's a quality of being, which can be quite magical. And some, of, some, of, some athletes report almost like psychic abilities of being able to read the minds of their teammates and so forth. Good book. Check it out. And, and so Michael Jordan hit seven in a row. And after seven, he walked by the scoring table and he went like this. which meant that he was becoming self-conscious. And of course, he missed his next shot. So, so I think we experience that. We experience that just washing the dishes, taking a walk. Do we know this, something like this? That's an experience of anatta. And we can also experience that in meditation where we're just with the flow of experience without much commentary or obsessive thinking, self-consciousness. And we, we invite that exploration. We can experience that being with the flow of impermanent experience. And so I think we practice uh, particularly impermanence and anatta by trying to be with that flow. It could just be the flow of a sensation, a sound, you know, even a thought. We can just let, it, let, let them come and go. Just one thing after another like that. That's to explore anatta. And so with impermanence and anatta, we explore that flow on the one hand. And then we also look to where uh, the flow is obstructed in some way. 
I, I like to use the language of when the thick self appears, <laughs> when the self becomes thick, which is, you know, in our meditation, this will be especially when there's a lot of reactivity, the self gets thick, a lot of obsessive thinking, self gets thick, uh, thinking about me, self-judgment, the self gets thick and so forth. So we want to study where the self gets thick. A lot of meditation has this dual quality of opening to the flow and then studying where the flow gets constricted. That describes a lot of the practice of the three characteristics and it's something we continually do. But it's a very, um, it's a simple practice in that way. But it's, it really goes very, very deeply. It's a very, that's why these, pr- the practice of these three characteristics really points to the deepest insights in the tradition. And that really getting really familiar with all of this is a very profound training. This is the Buddha. This is how the training should be done. Concerning this body with its consciousness, let there be no self-centered imaginings of I and mine and no such bias. With regard to external objects, let there be no self-centered imaginings of mine and no such bias. We shall then abide in the attainment of the heart's liberation and the liberation by wisdom. And as we study these three, we also begin to see their interrelationship that we can see how often when we have that sixth thick self appear, it is in a way a uh, resistance to or could be obstruction to the flow of impermanence. And there also can often be when there's that obstruction, a sense of suffering. If we look at when suffering appears, we'll see that there's some way that that flow doesn't continue. Or even if there's something like sadness or let's say something difficult happens, when I shoot the second arrow, I don't even let that sadness flow. I get into judgment. And so it's always just to come back to try to be present with what's ever happening without reaction. That's the, that is the core of mindfulness. That's our core our core practice. As we practice with the three characteristics and increasingly open to that sense of flow, we may start to have a sense of this flow of experiencing occurring in this larger awareness. We may start to have a sense almost of the receptacle or the container of experience being this large open awareness. That can happen at times in our experience. It can happen as well in the natural world. It can happen in all sorts of very um, everyday experiences where we have that sense of a large awareness. It can happen when we're um, very much connected to another person and, and where there is a profound kind of love manifests. There can be a sense of that <clears throat> large awareness that is in which, which is really beyond a sense of self. It can appear in the artistic process and so forth. There's a way in which this large awareness expresses a sense of freedom. And we find this spoken about in some of the teachings of the Buddha. And I want to talk now about the nature of this spacious awareness, primarily by talking some about how this appears in the ancient text, and especially how the understanding of spacious awareness appears in the uh, more contemporary Thai forest tradition, which is one of the main influences on spirit rock is really part of our lineage. And that sense of spacious awareness, as I've mentioned before, also appears in other Buddhist traditions, in Tibetan tradition, in Zen, and I think as well in other, other spiritual traditions because the finding, I think, really, is this is a core quality of our being.
the main way that the Buddha talked about consciousness and about mindfulness was in the framework of there being a knower and a known. We might say a subject-object distinction. And so the typical use of consciousness, the word is vijnana, is that there's always a knowing and an object. And we see that in the mindfulness, right? We have mindfulness and mindfulness knows a sound, a smell, it cognizes a thought and so forth. And that's the typical way that we really can understand consciousness in the uh, main sense that it's used in the teachings of the Buddha and the way that we understand mindfulness as being within this structure of knowing, knower and known. But there also is a kind of larger and more spacious awareness that's pointed to in the teachings of the Buddha, which is particularly connected with freedom and an end of suffering. And some interpreters take it actually as the presence of the sacred, the presence of Nibbana, the presence of Nirvana, this large spacious awareness And there's a way in which this is invoked in much of the tradition. There is a sense in one of the chants that's done very commonly in Buddhist monasteries. It goes, Squakato Bhagavato Dhammo Sanditiko Akaliko Ehi pasiko opanaiko bachatangwe ditapo winyuhiti. And it's actually an invocation of the qualities of the Dhamma or of the teachings on liberation. And if I would translate those those words, they would the first words Sanditiko or I'm sorry, Swakato Bhagavata Dhammo is means discovered and well-proclaimed by the Buddha. Sanditiko, apparent here and now. So the sense of this deep freedom is apparent. It's there. It can be um, present. Sometimes it's uh, translated as directly visible. Akaliko means timeless or immediate. Ehipasiko, come and look. Come and find this, this mode of being, this mode of awareness, opanaiko, onward lead, leading. Vachatangwe ditapo winyuhiti, experienceable by the wise. And there's this use of a description of another kind of consciousness, which many of us at Spirit Rock and in the larger community here have tended to translate by the word awareness. So here I'm using awareness not in the common sense where it's somewhat uh, synonymous often with consciousness or, or mindfulness, but awareness is pointing to a mode of um, knowing which is beyond our usual conceptualization and beyond the subject-object split. A passage from the teachings of the Buddha where consciousness is signless, boundless, all luminous. That's where earth, water, fire, and air find no footing. They're both long and short, small and great, fair and foul, their name and form are wholly destroyed. So I interpret that as meaning it's beyond conceptualization. There's a way of knowing, we might say, and even knowing it, we have to think of it as a different way of knowing. That's beyond concepts and beyond that usual split between knower and known. In other texts, it's connected with 
the end of suffering. There's a sense of freedom there. And of course, we can experience that momentarily or it can be more stabilized. You know, and in our practice, we will use some techniques that help us to access that sense of this large awareness, even for a short few moments. And then the deeper practice is to have that be more and more stabilized. And the, um, in a way, the reason for practicing in these first two ways with concentration and with the three characteristics is that in um, a lot of people's experience and in a number of traditions, that stabilizing of this spacious awareness requires significant stabilization in concentration and in the practice with the three characteristics. That's why we're doing this as a three-step process, you know. We don't go from one to the other, but we build, continually build and continually come back as we've been doing in our practice. We continually come back to stabilize attention. And then when it's somewhat stable, we move on to be with phenomena. When we can stably be with phenomena, we might move on to see if we can invite this spacious awareness. So there's a, a sequence here that we can, we can work with. Many of us know this um, quality of spacious awareness, especially from what we've learned from the Thai forest tradition, where it's called by a number of different names. The Thai forest tradition is actually fairly recent. Um, it, I wish I had some, now I wish I had, could be doing a presentation and give you the images of some of these great teachers. Uh, they're quite wonderful. And I do have a, a talk that's on the web where I, uh, where I do, where I combined a talk with a PowerPoint presentation that has images of these, these teachers, if you want to look that up. It's on Dharma Seed, so there, given my, my web reference for the, for the talk. <laughs> so the Thai forest tradition really uh, seems especially to originate, certainly in the form we know it, with the teachings of a teacher named Achan Mun. And Achan is simply the word for teacher in Thai. Achan Mun lived from uh, 1870 to 1949. And he talked about this uh, spacious awareness. He used words like the primal mind or the radiant mind. And he taught that this quality of spacious awareness is part of our birthright and part of our core nature and that there's a fundamental distinction between that spacious awareness and the contents of experience. This is, these are some lines from him. This mind is originally radiant and clear, but because passing corruptions and defilements come and obscure it, it doesn't show its radiance. Passing defilements come, and defilements is really another word for greed, hatred, and delusion. Come and obscure it, it loses its radiance like the sun when obscured by clouds. Don't go thinking that the sun goes after the clouds. Instead, the clouds come drifting along and obscure the sun. One of his students was a practitioner named uh, Mechi Chow, and she reported this kind of experience. Except for an exceedingly refined awareness, an awareness that suffused the entire cosmos, nothing appeared. Mind transcended conditions of time and space. 
a luminous essence of being that seemed boundless, yet wondrously empty, permeated everything throughout the universe. Everything seemed to be filled by a subtle quality of knowing, as if nothing else existed. One teacher that some of us had the uh, privilege to study with, Achan Cha, who is the teacher of Jack Kornfield, this was also very important for him. And I had the chance to study with him for a short period of time. He was a student of Achan Man and visited Achan Man. He heard about this teacher. He'd been practicing for some time, but didn't think he had the right instruction. And Achan Cha lived, I think, from his years were. 1918 to about 1993, I think. And I met him in the late 1970s. And he heard of this teacher, Achan Man, who was walking through the forests of Thailand and Burma. And he went up to try to find him. He, you know, in those days, one walked. <laughs> So he walked for weeks to find this teacher. That's how, how they did it. You know, they didn't, okay, I guess I'll just, uh, you know, I'll go try out um, Priceline and see what the best flight is. <laughs> and so he found Achan Man, but they found out that they were of different ordinations and there was kind of a tension between these two um, sects within Thai Buddhism. And it was actually improper for Achan Cha to stay for more than three days with Achan Man without changing his order. And Achan Man said, stay with your order. We need some good people in your order. <laughs> I think he meant that not in a judgmental way. <laughs> and so Achan Man just had a few days and he said, I got the essence of the teaching from Achan Man, which was that there's a quality of mind which is distinct from the contents of experience. There's a kind of spacious awareness which we can tap into, which is free from the contents of experience. And he said, that's enough. And he went off and practiced by himself for the next seven years. But that was the core, that's really the core teaching. And it's something that one can uh, tap into, that one can access. Achan Cha expressed it in this way. He used the metaphor of there being a chair in the center of the room. He said, just go into the room and put one chair in the center. Take the seat in the center of the room, open the doors and windows and see who comes to visit. You will witness all kinds of scenes and actors, all kinds of temptations and stories imaginable. Your only job is to stay in your seat the seat of that open awareness. Your only job is to stay in your seat. You will see it all arise and pass and out of this wisdom and understanding will come. As I see it, the mind is like a single point, the center of the universe and mental states are like visitors who come to stay at that point for short or long periods of time. So do you hear that distinction between the awareness and the contents? Get to know these visitors well. Become familiar with the vivid pictures they paint, the alluring stories they tell to entice you to follow them. But do not give up your seat. It is the only chair around. (laughs) (laughs) If you continue to occupy it unceasingly, greeting each guest as it comes, firmly establishing yourself in awareness, transforming your mind into the one who knows. That's another one of Achan Cha's phrase for the spacious awareness, the one who knows, the one who is awake. If you transform your mind into the one who knows, the one who is awake, the visitors will eventually stop coming back. If you give them real attention, how many times can these visitors return? Speak with them here and now, and you will know every one of them well. Then your mind will at last be at peace. And so we find this theme of this open awareness. Again, many of us know it through the Thai forest tradition. 
In a moment I'll talk about some ways of accessing it and we'll look into some ways of practicing also uh, tomorrow. Uh, first during the nine o'clock sitting. It's a very strong emphasis, as many of you know, in Tibetan tradition. There's something like that spacious awareness, which is called by different names, sometimes called nature of mind. But it has these qualities of being uh, non-conceptual, free of the subject-object split, open, and increasingly able, well, when that quality is present, not to be attached to what flows. But it's not, in most of the ways it's understood, it's not a transcendent state. But it's a state in which ordinary phenomena occur, but there's just a different relation to them, much like that metaphor of the chair and being with the visitors. This is from one of the great Tibetan teachers, Long Chenpa, I think from about the, the, uh, if I remember right, from the 12th or 13th century. Sensory appearances are unrestricted. So there's still that ordinary experience. Awareness is evident and naturally occurring. Since the genuine state of uncontrived rest is unobscured and unobstructed with no division into outer and inner, it is evident as the supreme nature of phenomena. Let your mind and body relax deeply in a carefree state with an easygoing attitude like a person who has nothing to do. So we have aspects of instructions there. This is from the Zen tradition, from uh, an ancient text called The Guidepost of Silent Illumination by Hongzi Zenju. And see if you have that same flavor appearing. Silent and serene, forgetting words, bright clarity appears before you. When you reflect it, you become vast, Where you embody it, you are spiritually uplifted. Spiritually solitary and shining inner illumination restores wonder. Dew in the moonlight, a river of stars, snow-covered pines, clouds enveloping the peaks. In darkness, it is most bright, while hidden, all the more manifest. So we can hear these qualities, non-conceptualization, lack of subject-object or inner-outer split, an awareness which doesn't construct experience in the same way as we usually do. Sounds interesting? Ready to sign up? Maybe you have, well, you already have. (laughs) So how do we access this state? And again, uh, a model is actually is that we probably almost certainly have experienced something like this in the past and maybe even my talk may have brought back memories. We can access it for often for short moments and then it passes, right? And again, the logic of this retreat is that we build concentration and awareness of the nature of phenomena as a way to build the capacity to open in this way, even if it's briefly. And there's a kind of a sequence which we can work with in retreat and also in practice where we try to gain more stability first with concentration and then when we have that we open again to be with the phenomena. When that has a significant amount of stability then we can open to this spacious awareness. We might continually in a retreat continually monitor where we are and do the practice that's appropriate. That's really the the logic again, or the uh, understanding of, of what we're working with. So I mentioned how this experience sometimes is accessed in very ordinary experience in everyday life in a number of different ways. We can have that sense of awareness. Uh, one of the ways that it actually appears, and this, these are actually sometimes techniques used in some traditions, is to, it, it sometimes appears at moments when the mind just is not active for some reason. And so, for example, some teachers say you can really get a sense of this open, spacious awareness by looking at certain interesting moments, like when you yawn. You didn't come here to learn about techniques of yawning, I imagine. (laughs) But actually, when you yawn, and right the moment after you yawn, there's a kind of like a pause or a break, much like Tija was talking about studying the breath and noting the pause. 
And often there's a pause that actually for a moment there's something like that open awareness. Another example given is when we're just totally exhausted. Maybe you've come home from a trip, you're totally exhausted and you're just there and your mind can go nowhere and yet there's still awareness. So the invitation is to study those moments. Maybe not deliberately getting yourself exhausted so you can study it, but those moments occur. Another is when there's some sense of being startled. And so one of the techniques that's sometimes used is just to... Did you notice? (laughs) Tune in to a moment after that, right? In some traditions, there's a technique used that makes use of that sense of startle. So uh, where we're just, for whatever reason, we're just not actively trying to do anything. Just at that moment. Did you feel something like that? Interesting, isn't it? Studying when you sneeze is also recommended. (laughs) So you get a sense through these, through these aspects of when there's some kind of startle. That's one way of accessing it, is to look at those moments. We can also look at the pause between breaths. Sometimes there also is, at when a thought ends, there's a kind of a pause or a gap. And if you tune in there, you can sometimes get a sense of this larger awareness. So you see, it's very interesting. You can study all these aspects of experience that maybe weren't so interesting before. (laughs) And if we hear a lot of yawning and sneezing (laughs) in the hall or people just going to themselves. (laughs) Maybe on your own you can do it, okay? (laughs) So there's a whole way of uh, accessing it that way. Sometimes another way of accessing is sometimes using certain words. It could be reading passages like the one I read. Probably when I read some of those passages, was there some sense where those words maybe invoked something, at least for a moment? One of the Tibetan teachers I've studied with, uh, Anam Tupton, uh, who some of you know, I think, who teaches in the Bay Area. I was talking with him just about some of the ways that he learned to access this in Tibet. And he was saying that a really a main way of accessing it would be to either read passages very briefly or have them memorized and say them to the oneself. And sometimes that can, the words can have a certain power where they invoke that open awareness. So for example, I use phrases which really resonated, have resonated with me, which come from the Tibetan tradition from uh, a text uh, called Clarifying the Natural State. In the Tibetan tradition, this open awareness is sometimes called the natural state. And this is from the 16th century by uh, uh, Dagpo Tashi Namgyal. And the, I, sort of condense some passages into these lines, which I sometimes use in my own practice. Open like the sky, pervasive like the earth, unshakable like a mountain, shining like a flame, lucid like a crystal. So at other times people might use other phrases. Another phrase I sometimes use is rest in awareness. And this is going to be individual, but sometimes we can use those to access. There are ways we can also sometimes access this large awareness in metta practice. Where I mentioned sometimes just in very natural states where where love gets very big, there can be that sense of a large awareness that's beyond the person. Metta, sometimes the awareness goes out in space and becomes very large and can have a lot of the qualities of this. Some of you know the lines from the Metta Sutta that go like this. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. And so through the heart, one can also access this kind of awareness.
Another way that's used in some traditions is to actively deconstruct the ordinary mind. We don't do that so much here. It's done in some traditions. You, you may know this best as what's done when one practices uh, uh, the Zen koan. Maybe Tijak can tell us a little bit more of that from his own experience of Zen. But in the Zen koan, one, you know, what is the sound of one hand clapping you? In a way, one frustrates the ordinary rational mind to the point where it just says, enough already, and it relaxes. And then that open awareness can, can surface. One contemporary Zen teacher, uh, Sun Sunim, would ask this. He would hold up an orange. Is this an orange? If you say yes, I will hit you 30 times. If you say no, I will hit you 30 times. <laughs> you can see it's... Um, we don't use those kind of practices here, typically. <laughs> Maybe special request. So, but there can be, and in a number of different traditions use techniques of working with that active, rational, logical mind to let one drop into something bigger. Typically by frustrating it. <laughs> and so here we are, we'll, we will use some of these techniques, but there's also a way of entering into that open awareness through the kind of practices we're doing here. We can build a base of concentration. We can work with the three characteristics and increasingly be with the flow of phenomena. And in doing so, there's a way in which we can uh, increasingly thin out the knower that is separate from the known. In other words, we can start to, through our practices, deconstruct the split between knower and known, between subject and object. And so we do that in part when we invite choiceless awareness, as we did in the last sitting. We let go of the intention to be aware of this particular object. In in other words, we let go of the will. And we still have the intention to track we're still tracking, there's still a knower known distinction. But part of the mechanism of our uh, ordinary way of knowing isn't there when we have choiceless awareness. And then when we open the eyes and learn to be with phenomena without conceptualizing through the eyes, there's some further way that we're still tracking, but we're in a way not having be necessary the ordinary conceptualization of experience, a lot of which occurs through the eyes. And so through the practice of the three characteristics with impermanence, practicing not self, we sort of ready ourselves to be, to have this very open awareness that can just be with whatever's occurring. And so there can still be that uh, construct of knower and known. And one way of opening to that um, awareness beyond the construct of knower and known is to move through the choiceless awareness to learn how to be with the eyes open choiceless awareness. We're still tracking. We're still trying to see what's there. I'm watching, I'm just tracking. There's this sound, there's this sight, there's this thought and so forth. And then at a certain point, I let go of the tracking. This is actually similar to other techniques used where I let go of the intention to actively know. And then at times when the stability of mind is enough, that can open up also as another way of opening up to that awareness. And we'll explore that particular technique some uh, tomorrow. So there's not an intention to know but there's still awareness. It's very interesting. And so one of the 
ways that we continue with that practice is we learn how to access that open awareness, even for very brief times, which can uh, be quite beautiful. And then, you know, we don't want to hang on to it too tightly if we access it. We don't want to push it too much. We want to really let it be natural, which is a whole challenge of practice because it can be very, very sweet, very nice. And so we try increasingly to access it in meditation under these um, protected conditions. And we try to have it get larger in meditation. And then when it gets to some stability in meditation, we can start to bring it into daily life. and start to bring that open awareness into daily life in ordinary interactions, in ordinary experience. Let me close with an important point, which I think we'll take up further in the next few days, which is to come back to the quality of the heart. That when we see clearly into the three characteristics, we can see how conditioned we've been, how conditioned the mind is, the body, the heart. And we can see that by not being able to see clearly these three aspects of things, there's a lot of suffering. You know, just think of the suffering of simply one of the aspects I've talked about, shooting the second arrow. Most of the wars and major conflicts in our world are about shooting the second arrow. So you can see that this training actually is a training that I think in the long run is very important for larger culture and for dealing with large issues also. It's not separate, that was like my comment initially. And we can, see how, we can see that there's a lot of suffering, tremendous suffering connected with not knowing impermanence, not knowing the way that we react and the way that there's suffering and also how there's freedom and by the way that we grasp onto self, the way that we react with self, there's a lot we notice that there's a lot of suffering. And as we practice in this way, we, I think, naturally have a sense of compassion develop for ourselves, for others. We see the extent to which we and much of the world are on automatic a lot. And that's connected with suffering. And we see that there is a way to work through that automatic conditioning. And so it's both very important to stay in touch with heart practices as we work with concentration and the three characteristics and this spacious awareness, just to stay connected with the heart. But it's also a way that part of the way this practice evolves further is that it becomes increasingly indistinguishable from compassion that there is a way that we know this deeply and there's compassion for ourselves, for others. Let me just finish with uh, quite a beautiful passage from uh, the well-known teacher Joseph Goldstein about about this point. He says, the more we practice compassionate responsiveness, the more easily we recognize the selfless quality of the mind's essence. And the more easily we recognize the innate empty wakefulness of the mind's essential nature, the more spontaneously compassionate we are in all situations. This is really the direction. And that would be, again, part of the training and also part of the way that we would express this in the world. I want to thank you for your uh, very kind attention. And 
we'll continue exploring this in the, uh, particularly tomorrow. We'll have a period of walking. If you want to continue with that practice of choiceless awareness or any aspect of the practice of the three characteristics, you can even startle yourself momentarily, (laughs) if you wish, and just check into that awareness. And we'll come back at nine again for our metta practice, again, bringing in the quality of the heart. And uh, and again with chanting, both the metta chant and then the chant uh, on impermanence. Thank you again.